you're listening to Life Raft, where we explore your questions about living with climate change. Hey, Travis. Hey, Lauren. Our question today comes from Jessica Sims. Hello. Hey, Jessica. This is uh, Travis and Lauren. Hello. Hi. You wrote to us asking about flood insurance. So what was the question that you wanted to see us explore? You know, I think something like how how much longer is New Orleans a city going to be viable? And um, when will flood insurance be unaffordable? When I mean, I, I imagine that that will in some way facilitate the non-viability of the city. Right. That's a pretty heavy question. What's got you wondering this? You know, sometimes like uh, on in November... That was my birthday, actually, and it just started raining, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I was at a bar, and I, I came home, and my my boyfriend's street was completely flooded, and was up to you know the bottom of my of my car. Mm-hmm. I, I had looked up the weather that morning, and it was just you know supposed to rain. It wasn't supposed to flood. Those types of events make me concerned for our future. It sounds like you're think you're you're kind of assuming that flood insurance rates will go up eventually. So, can you kind of paint a, a picture of like the worst case scenario that you're worrying about? I, I mean, right now my flood insurance is is pretty cheap. I pay four seventy five a year. So I worry at some point, you know, when it becomes unaffordable in mass. It sounds like you're saying, um, is there going to be a time? where flood insurance rates skyrocket here, and maybe when will that happen? And then also, what does that mean for the future of the city? Is that a good summary of what you're saying? Yeah. I'm going to be yeah. honest. I'm, I'm very nervous to do this episode. <laughs> mm. Oh, I bet it looks bleak. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah. From WWNO, WRKF, and PRX, this is Life Raft, your survival guide for a changing planet. I'm Lauren Malera. I'm a comic. I'm from New Orleans, uptown, baby. And I'm Travis Lux. I'm an environment reporter for New Orleans Public Radio. And today on the show, flood insurance. Could the rising cost of flood insurance force us to move before climate change does? Okay, let's make the climate connection here before we dive into this question. Let's draw the line from climate change to flood insurance. What does one have to do with the other? So the whole idea with flood insurance is it's like any other kind of insurance in a lot of ways. You pay every year for a plan, and if your house gets flooded, you get money to help fix up your house. This is separate from homeowner's insurance, which doesn't usually cover flooding. Yeah, exactly. And so we know, of course, that climate change is making it more likely for flooding to happen in many parts of the country, including here in New Orleans. Storms are getting heavier, and that's making street flooding more and more common. It's also making hurricanes stronger and causing sea levels to rise. So the Gulf of Mexico is more of a flooding risk, too. And also the fear that some people like Jessica have is that flood insurance is going to get more expensive to reflect that increased risk.
And if that happens, some people might not be able to afford it. They might be forced to move. And there could be a slow exodus away from riskier places simply due to the cost alone. Yeah. And that isn't the only issue either. Some people think that flood insurance requirements could also disrupt local real estate markets, tank them even. So whether that's here in New Orleans or any other coastal city, really, the way that could work is, you know, right now, some mortgages require homeowners to buy flood insurance in riskier areas. So if you can't get insurance on a home because it's simply too expensive to do that or it's too risky to do that, then you might not be able to buy that house. And that also means that homeowners who wanted to sell their house are going to have a harder time selling those houses and they'll kind of be stuck with that house. So buyers can't buy, sellers can't sell. And, you know, this is not just for coastal cities, too. You could say similar things for for the wildfires out west, for example. Okay, so those are threats and they're real. So now let's talk about how flood insurance works in this country. Now, we know flood insurance is like the least fun and exciting thing to talk about, but it's obviously a huge deal. I can't believe how little I knew about it, given that I'm from New Orleans. The worst case scenarios we've outlined are here, and it's wonky, and it's really a lot, but it's very important. So to get some basics about how flood insurance works in the United States, we called up the person who literally wrote the book on this stuff. Her name's Rebecca Elliott, and she's a professor of sociology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And her new book, which just came out, is called Underwater, Loss, Flood Insurance, and the Moral Economy of Climate Change in the United States. And to illustrate just how much power the flood insurance program has over our lives, she told us the story of Palmer Doyle. Palmer Doyle is a retired firefighter and lives in Bell Harbor, a neighborhood on the Rockaway Peninsula in Queens, New York. Rebecca met Palmer while working on her Ph.D. That was right after Hurricane Sandy struck New York City. Palmer's house took on about eight feet of water. That water was in the house for a long time. It was actually covered with a slick of heating oil. He doesn't live on the beach, but one of the kind of big beachfront mansions, their oil tank had leaked. And and so the, the water was really polluted, and um, that water left a kind of gray line around the walls of his house on the inside. Eventually, Palmer repaired his home, slowly clearing it of mold and muck. And then all of a sudden, he found out that his flood insurance policy was going to change. And so Palmer learned that his flood insurance premiums and those of his neighbors were likely to increase from a couple hundred dollars a year to ultimately potentially in the thousands. And so this created a real, you know, kind of affordability squeeze for Palmer and and some of the folks that he lived among. Rebecca says there were a couple of reasons why this increase was happening. First of all, the maps used to determine flood risk for New York City were just updated. And those maps showed that his house was actually at greater flood risk than everyone previously thought. And second of all, Congress made a change to the National Flood Insurance Program, the NFIP. Because here in the United States, flood insurance is basically a public-private program. Unlike car insurance and most health insurance programs, which are run by private companies, flood insurance is run by the government. 
FEMA. So the government sets the rates and does the research, but the policies are technically offered through private companies. So that's the program Palmer was dealing with after Hurricane Sandy. It also meant that he was faced with some really tough choices because flood insurance is structured such that if you want to lower your premiums, you have a couple of options. You can elevate the lowest floor of your home so that it's situated above the height of the expected floodwaters. But in a place like New York City, that's estimated to cost around $100,000 and It would mean also that his house, which he had just repaired, would be turned back into a construction site that he may or may not be able to live in for an unknown number of months. The other option would simply be to relocate to safer ground. But of course, that's not really so simple. That would mean for him taking his family and leaving behind friends and neighbors and, you know, a lifetime of memories. And so for him, it really seemed like there were no good options Ultimately, Palmer linked up with a bunch of other homeowners across the country to fight Congress on these changes. Because remember, it's not private companies setting the flood insurance rates. It's the federal government. And Rebecca said they ultimately succeeded at slowing down some of the changes that Congress wanted. So for Palmer and his neighbors, their flood insurance problem was ultimately a political problem. So now let's talk about what the NFIP was actually designed to do, where it came from, and how it works. To understand the history of this program, we called Andy Horowitz. He's a historian at Tulane University in New Orleans. He's kind of a historian on disaster. He just wrote a book about Hurricane Katrina. It's called Katrina, A History, 1915 to 2015. He actually used his history knowledge to help him figure out where he wanted to live in New Orleans. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this. when, b- Before I bought my house, I went over to my, to my colleague, Rich Campanella's office, the great New Orleans geographer, and he pulled up his maps, his LIDAR elevation maps, these laser-generated elevation maps. And I made sure my house was seven feet above sea level and hadn't flooded in over a century. So I was, I was well aware of where I was living. And I was very privileged to have had the sort of economic ability to make that choice. You know, that's not lost on me for an instant. Andy said that for a time, the flood insurance marketplace was run by private insurance companies. Basically, what happened is, at the beginning of the 20th century, private insurers sold flood insurance. You buy a policy. If my house floods, the insurance company give you some money to help you pay for the damage. But in 1927, the Mississippi River flooded catastrophically. It was a huge national disaster. And the problem that flood insurance had was that basically you would only buy it if your house was likely to flood, (laughs) which seems sort of obvious. But like many, many insurable risks are evenly distributed, like the risk of a home burning, fire insurance, basically any house can burn. But, you know, good luck selling flood insurance in a desert is the idea. So it just didn't, it didn't work as a private market thing. So there was no flood insurance really available in the United States in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 1960s. By the 60s, there had been a string of disasters that started to get very expensive for the government because the government was spending a lot of money on disaster relief helping people recover, like Hurricane Betsy, which hit New Orleans and the Gulf Coast in 1965. Congress didn't want to spend so much money on disaster relief and went looking for a solution. So in 1968, they passed a bill that created the National Flood Insurance Program, the NFIP. 
The program had a couple of goals. The idea with flood insurance was to get homeowners to sort of prepay for that disaster relief by paying a premium, you know, their annual premium. So one goal was to spend less money on disasters because people would be forking over some of the cost. And the other thing it was supposed to do was to prevent new construction in flood-prone areas, risky areas. The original intent of the legislation, as I understand it, was that you were not supposed to be able to rebuild a house that was totally damaged. So it was meant to really prevent or limit exposure to floods in the first instance. That was the idea. And this was through this idea of actuarial rating. That's Rebecca Elliott again. Rather than the federal government saying, okay, we're going to sort of make our own judgment of whether or not it is economical to develop a particular location, we are going to say we will provide that flood insurance on the basis of an assessment of the risk, and then it's up to kind of individual decision makers to decide whether the costs outweigh the benefits or vice versa. In other words, we won't necessarily tell you where you can live and where you can't live, but we'll make it really expensive for you to live in those risky places. Which seems pretty reasonable. But both Rebecca and Andy told us that the NFIP has not kept people from living in risky areas, partly because the federal government helped some homeowners pay for part of their premiums, subsidies. Basically what happened is that in order to try to get more people to buy flood insurance, Congress kept easing the restrictions and increasing the subsidies. So effectively, rather than preventing people from building in flood-prone areas, the National Flood Insurance Program became a mechanism that encouraged people to build houses and buy houses in flood-prone areas. Because all of a sudden, okay, if there's some flood risk, well, you just pay your $400 a year or whatever it is. And you don't worry about it too much. And so, you know, since the bill was passed in the the 60s, there now are millions of more Americans who live in flood-prone places than did before the act was passed. And, And, you know, in the meantime, the flood risks are only becoming greater because of the changing climate. Okay, so that's the background of the NFIP and what it was designed to do. And it did the opposite of what it was intended to do. It didn't get people out of flood-prone areas. It encouraged them to buy and build in high-risk areas. So the next thing that we need to talk about is the money part. How does that work? And who decides how much people pay? Because this is what Jessica was curious about. Here's Rebecca Elliott again. The idea is that you're doing some kind of insurance pricing on the basis of risk, then you need to know what that risk is. And... The flood insurance program relies on these maps that are called flood insurance rate maps. Those maps are created by the government, by FEMA. One of the things they do is they look at historic data about how often a place has flooded in the past. They also do a lot of science in-person mapping. So they're trying to figure out something called the base flood elevation. And that's basically how high the water could get during one of those 100-year floods which is a flood that has a 1% chance of happening in a given year. And the information from that map is meant to get kind of plugged into an insurance rating formula that then would spit out your premium. So depending on the zone you're in, depending on where your house is situated relative to that base flood elevation, that will shape the price that you pay for insurance. 
So for the most part, what you pay is determined by where you live and the complicated algorithm. But there are ways that you can pay less. Like if you elevate your home onto stilts, for example, you can get a discount. Yes, but there is also a problem with these maps that Rebecca is talking about. She and many others say that these maps are kind of out of date. Some people have argued that they're kind of too conservative. That actually they underestimate risk in a lot of locations, and that has a lot to do with the fact that this is a hugely difficult. Task and an expensive task to map all of the floodplains of the country and to do it over and over and over again to keep them updated. Floodplains change over time; landscapes change, and plus, this country is big. There's a lot of landscape to map, and Rebecca says FEMA hasn't been funded well enough to keep updating those maps. All right, that was a lot of dense information, but I do think it's been helpful to understand all that stuff before we talk about the future of the program. In this era of catastrophic climate change, we're gonna do that. Talk about the future after the break. Okay, so we've kind of been stalling here. Let's talk about the future. That's what Jessica asked us about. What does the future of flood insurance look like? And is it possible to tell how much it might cost? And we have some clues about what could happen. But honestly, no firm numbers to work from. So FEMA is currently redesigning the way it calculates risk under the NFIP. There's going to be new maps and new algorithms, maybe, and that actually goes into effect this year, October first, twenty twenty-one. So unless FEMA postpones this, which they have done already, people are going to see new rates this year, and they're calling this whole new thing risk rating two point oh. The future. The future. So as for why this is happening, on their website, FEMA says the current methodology is basically outdated and that technology has improved, and they want to take advantage of this better technology. It also says that these changes will allow people to better understand their actual risk, and that it will create more transparency in this whole program. Now, as for pricing, the website suggests people's rates won't skyrocket overnight. So here's what it says. This is from the website. Quote, risk rating 2.0 will prevent significant premium increases by offering a glide path discount to existing policyholders and new homeowners buying homes from existing policyholders. End quote. I'm trying to get on a glide path. <laughs> it sounds like a new dance. <laughs> it sounds pretty good, huh? Yeah. So we don't know how much people's rates will increase or by how much. We don't. FEMA says it doesn't have that information yet, and it's still working out the analyses to figure out that part of it. But Rebecca Elliott says that this approach, this risk rating 2.0 thing, is very much in line with the way the program has been heading recently, which is to say that it's trying to behave more like a private insurance program. And the idea there is that you know this is somehow fairer. That you you should only pay for precisely the amount of risk that you bring to the risk pool. I mean, insurance is premised on this idea that you create these kind of risk classes, and and people agree to share the risk. Um, you know, so so it's a really interesting direction for the program to move. Rebecca says it's generally safe to assume that flood insurance rates are going to go up, and that more people are going to need it. But getting back to Jessica's question, the question that kicked off this episode, Rebecca says that her question is kind of impossible to answer right now. I mean, 
I wish I could answer that question with a date and a time <laughs> and a, a cost threshold, but it's really going to depend on a lot of things. It's going to depend on you know how the the physical risks actually change in New Orleans, and that in turn will just be a function not only of climate change but also of what New Orleans and Louisiana does to kind of fortify the city. And the good thing here on this point is that the state has a pretty robust plan to deal with coastal land loss in Louisiana. It's taking action and spending money trying to address some of the damages of not just the oil and gas industry, but also increasingly climate change. And they're rebuilding marshes and trying to beef up the coast to stand up to hurricanes and that kind of thing. And then also, like we talked about um, in a recent episode on this show, the state's now looking for ways to reduce its carbon emissions. Those are all good steps. But there is another wild card, and that's politics. And here it is. We started out talking about insurance, but what it's actually coming down to is politics. How much water do you get in your house on an annual or, you know, once a decade basis is a somewhat different question than how long will your flood insurance remain affordable? One is a product of water. The other is a product of Congress and Congress can do whatever it pleases. In talking to both Andy and Rebecca, they told us about how many times Congress has come up with a new system for flood insurance only to tweak it later or backtrack when it looked like rates would be unaffordable. I don't have a great guess about what Congress will do, except to say that in the somewhat recent past, like Congress tried to, in fact, passed a bill that was that was meant to restore some of that original purpose to the flood insurance program and actually use it as a mechanism for making it very expensive to build houses in flood prone places or to remain in them for too long. And they sort of misjudged how expensive it would get so quickly to charge what are called actuarial rates. And it seemed like New Orleans and many other places were about to become uh, in, in really deep trouble in terms of how, how expensive flood insurance was. And Congress pretty quickly rescinded that bill. So you can read that one of two ways. You can read that recent history as either, well, Congress has considered making flood insurance much more expensive in the recent past, and therefore it might happen very soon again, or you can read that story as when faced with the prospect of actually making flood insurance very expensive, Congress quickly retreated and didn't want to do that. So that you know, history is not a great guide here for what, what Congress will do. But but I, I just want to I just want to emphasize that this is uh, the cost of flood insurance is entirely a political problem and is not related to the risk of flooding. It just is a question of how much does Congress want to subsidize the cost of flood insurance. I think this is one of the biggest takeaways of this episode. You know, the overarching question that we're asking here is not just one of science or economics, like it's easy to think. It's just as much or maybe more a political question, which is really what do we want the National Flood Insurance Program to do? You know, as I think about flood insurance in the future of New Orleans, I think a lot about the months after the Katrina flood, when New Orleanians engaged with the idea of the so-called Green Dot Plan. Basically, there was a plan that city planners and architects put together pretty soon after the flood that said um, the lowest-lying neighborhoods of New Orleans, or most of the lowest-lying neighborhoods in New Orleans, Lakeview was not included, leading many to think there were kind of racist implications here, a reasonable inference to draw there. 
But the idea was that there are these neighborhoods in New Orleans that are demonstrably unsafe to live. They had just flooded catastrophically. People had drowned in their own homes. And so the Green Dot Plan said basically, don't rebuild those neighborhoods. Move people to higher ground or out of the city entirely. Now, there were two readings of that proposal. One said, don't put New Orleanians at risk. And you can imagine this is a really humane idea. You know, certainly don't encourage people who have the least resources and the least choice to move to places that are the most vulnerable. That just seems like a a horrible affront, you know, an assault assault on on basic decency. But, But the other reading said, how dare you city planners tell me that I can't go home after the trauma that I've just endured to somehow, you know, put a green dot over my neighborhood and say that, that I can't return home while you can move back uptown just seemed absol- a, a similarly outrageous violation of human decency. And that debate strikes me as pretty similar to the one that is looming over flood-prone neighborhoods in the future. Do we have a right to return to places that flood? Do we have a right to remain in places that require significant government subsidies to continue to rescue and rebuild? And, and rebuild? Or do we have a right to live in places that don't flood? Do we have a right to government subsidies to move and to live in places that are safe? That question is not one that can be resolved with a calculator. That's a question about justice and fairness and what the goals of our neighborhoods and communities are. And I think we should talk about them as such. I hate this. I do. I hate this. I don't know what the right, (laughs) I don't know what's right here. Yeah. It's so complicated. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I definitely um, can understand the parallels that he's drawing to Hurricane Katrina here. I told you I had a friend who stayed in the housing projects after Katrina and was arrested for going into her unit that she lived in to recover family photos right. because the government said that people could not be there. Makes me so sad, Travis. I know, man. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that I'm thinking about here is just how much we're asking the National Flood Insurance Program to do for us. Too much. It's a lot. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I can't tell. Maybe this shouldn't be that surprising um, because maybe this is also true for a lot of government policies, but we're really asking a lot. And I think... This is why the subtitle of Rebecca Elliott's book is Loss, Flood Insurance, and the Moral Economy of Climate Change in the United States, because these questions are really big ones about who we are and how we make tough decisions, basically. You know, what is the right thing to do? What is the wrong thing to do? What is fair? What is unfair? You know, who deserves support? What, what should, what's the appropriate role of the government? What's the appropriate role of the market? And so we talk about climate change in the terms of risk and cost. And, you know, I think that's a useful language for making a lot of kinds of decisions, but they can't always tell you what decision to make. Both Rebecca and Andy basically said the same thing, that these questions should be answered by us, the people. When it comes to the climate crisis, science and geology and engineering and numbers and all that, it's only going to get us part of the way. You know, they can help us guess how long we've got and what kind of risks we face in the short and medium term. But they can't answer any of the questions about what we ought to do. They can't help us balance who should decide when it's time to leave 
you know, the order in which we should leave, the mechanism by which people should go, the mechanism by which we should make those decisions. Because those are questions about democracy, about our civic and social life, about our commitment to our communities and to each other. These are the questions that, you know, the highest aspiration is what government is supposed to do when we engage with it well. It's hard to imagine right now, things seem so bleak in our civic life. It's hard to imagine having those kind of discussions about what matters to us, about our values, about what justice should be. So I realized that, you know, the, the listeners who are eager to know, hey, should I, you know, should I buy this house in Gentilly? You know, what's it, what, what's it, what's a good rate? You know, how, how long should I carry my flood insurance? That the answer I'm giving is not going to help you make those decisions. But I fear that, that we're past the point where those are the questions we need to be asking. I think we need to be asking, you know, how do we build communities that are able to make tough decisions together? Sure, we need to invest in making a rational flood insurance program, but we also need to increase our democratic capacity to make really difficult decisions so that we can build towards a future that feels fair and livable and, you know, even even happy. <laughs> All those things are available to us if we choose to engage them. We just got to do it and, and not not pretend like there's going to be some calculator that can add up the right answer for us. So what are you thinking about, Travis? What's rolling around in that brain of yours? Um, it feels like the fate of New Orleans or any place like it is in the hands of politicians, essentially. Mm-hmm. It, even though it's not directly in our hands, this is still a democracy for the most part. And so like Palmer Doyle from, from the beginning of this episode, what we can do is we can get involved um, and raise a stink if we don't like what we see from from politicians, whether it's about this particular program or another one related to climate change. And so I guess what that means is that essentially we just, the pressure's in some ways on us to learn up on these issues. Yeah, I don't know if that made sense. What do you think? It does. I mean, I'm definitely taken away from this that I need to educate myself about this so that I can vote in a way that supports the policies that I believe in. And I mean... If anything, taking away that learning about flood insurance was valuable. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this was this episode was dense with information, but it's important because how can I know like how to vote if I don't know how how this stuff works? And we found out through doing this that renters, you and I both, we can get flood insurance, yes. which is not something that I knew. I didn't know either, but I'll wait till October, I think. Yeah, see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well... I guess we should do the credits. Yep. Life Raft is a production of WWNO, WRKF, and PRX, and is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This episode was produced by Betsy Shepard and me, Travis Lux. It was edited by Curtis Fox. Original music by Peter Bowling and additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. The logo art is by Laura Sanders. And WWNO's Coastal Desk is supported by the Greater New Orleans Foundation and the Walton Family Foundation. And if you've got a question you want us to explore, remember, you can send it to us. We've got a submission form on our website, liferaftpod.org. And there's also a link to that form in our show notes. 
And of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at LifeRaftPod. So give us a follow. Yes. And as always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show and learn about flood insurance, which we all need to learn about. All right. See you in two weeks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.